0: Turn to Romans chapter 9. Romans chapter 9. Got a bit of uh, traveling to do in this text this morning, so let me go ahead and read from Romans 9, verse 30 through chapter 10 and verse 11. What shall we say then? That Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained it. That is a righteousness that is by faith, but that Israel who pursued a law that would lead to righteous uh, law, uh, that would lead to righteousness. Did not succeed in reaching that law. Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith, but as if it were based on works. They have stumbled over the stumbling stone, as it is written, "Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, and whoever believes in him." That is the word of faith that we proclaim. Because if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. For the scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. Lord, we are thankful for this portion of your word that we're going to look at this morning. truly is wonderful news, giving us a part of what we need to know to be saved. To be saved from the consequence of our sin. So that the the blood that Jesus poured out for us could, in a sense, be put on the doorpost of our lives, on the lintel of our, our lives, and the wrath of God would pass over us. So praise you for this passage. Help us to understand it. And then to live in light of it. We pray this in your great name. Amen. All of us have heard the statement that there are two things that are absolutely certain. Death and taxes. Right. We've all heard that statement. But that statement is definitely disputable. And I, and I say that because the scriptures are very clear that not all will face death. Those, those believers in Christ who are alive at the return of the Lord Jesus will not taste mankind's most feared enemy, death. No, they'll be changed from mortal to immortal in the blink of an eye. Likewise, I think it should be obvious to all of us that not everyone pays their taxes. Right? A lot of people don't pay their taxes. But I would suggest to you today that there are two indisputable truths that Paul puts forth in Romans chapter 9 and 10. This is the section that we're in in the book of Romans vindication. God, uh, God's vindication and his dealings with the Jews and the Gentiles. There are many more than just two in, uh indisputable truths in Romans 9 and 10, but there are at least these two, divine sovereignty and human responsibility. Divine sovereignty and human responsibility. I mean, the Bible is just replete with references that speak about the absolute sovereignty of Almighty God, right? Amen. And equally filled with statements that stress the responsibility of people, They're held responsible. And what we've seen so far in Romans 9 has focused on the subject of God's sovereignty, specifically as it relates to the doctrine of divine, sovereign election. And we saw that Paul explains, in part, the tragedy of Israel's rejection as a matter which is accounted accounted for by the fact that God never chose every Jew, to be saved in his sovereign plan of election, he only chooses certain ones to be the recipients of his grace and mercy, leading, leading uh, them or causing them to escape his judgment. and I would I would suggest to you that's an indisputable truth. divine sovereign election in God's sovereignty, he chooses some and does not choose everyone. He just doesn't. We've seen that obviously that the exact manner in which the uh, divine sovereign election has taken place is one that is disputed <laughs> it is constantly argued among believers or even unbelievers will join the fray of that but the fact that the text Romans chapter 9 verses 1 through 29 emphasizes that God is sovereign and free to act as he chooses that's not debated it's just clearly written right we saw that as we went through those 29 verses, it's an indisputable truth. But there is another indisputable truth, and we'll see it as we move on in our study. the end of chapter 9, 30 through 33, and then on into chapter 10. And, and that is the truth that also vindicates God's dealings with the Jews and the Gentiles, as far as salvation is concerned. It's the truth that people are held responsible. They're held responsible before God for their faith or their lack of faith. As strongly as the apostle proclaimed in chapter 9 that the reason that so many, the bulk of the nation of Israel, were lost was because God never chose them all to be saved. So, in chapter 10, he clearly proclaims that the reason people are lost and face condemnation is not because they, uh, it is because they do not believe the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ It's essential to understand it is essential to understand that the Bible teaches both of these indisputable truths, and, and we must be careful that we don't focus our attention on only one of these to the exclusion of the other. And that can happen. If, for example, we focus our attention solely on the doctrine of divine, sovereign election, that God chooses some to show mercy to and others he doesn't show mercy to, he hardens them, then we'll become fatalist. If that's all we focus on, it's easy for us to become fatalists. Well, I, it is what it is. Okay, say rah, say rah. If you can picture the little animal singing that in Lion King. So we'll become like the man who, rising up early in the morning, you know, gets out of his bed. And he's, not, he's half awake and he walks down the hallway and he trips over a child's toy, one of his children's toys, at the top of the steps. And he stumbles down the steps. He hits the bottom and he, you know, he slowly gets up and he kind of shakes himself and he says, boy... I'm glad I got that over with. Like, you know, it was, had to happen, right? It, it had to happen, because that's the way life is, fatalism. And if we only focus on people's responsibility to believe the gospel, then we'll surely end up exalting the creature over the creator. And, and what I mean by that is we'll begin to conclude that it's people who determine their own salvation, Because they were wise enough, or they were good enough, or godly enough, or law-abiding enough to receive God's offer of salvation. When we come to the doctrine of salvation, it has to be clear that the scriptures teach that God is sovereign, and the people are responsible. And I will admit to you that these two indisputable truths (laughs) seem to be irreconcilable. I mean, they're difficult to put together. How can God truly be sovereign and yet hold man accountable? How can salvation be totally a matter of God's sovereign choice and people still be held responsible for not believing? Aren't these two truths mutually exclusive? And certainly from our perspective, they seem to be. And and that's obvious because Paul even talked about that last in the last passage in chapter nine that we looked at last week in verse 19 well why does God still find fault then who can resist his will how can you then put the blame on people because isn't it just divine sovereign choosing and that's it nothing more but I would tell you from our perspective even though they may be difficult to put together and even irreconcilable in a sense to to us That's simply because the finite cannot understand the infinite. The mind of man cannot fully comprehend the ways of God. My thoughts are not your thoughts, in Isaiah, God had said. My ways are not your ways. My ways are inscrutable beyond finding out, Paul will say in Romans chapter 11. But because the finite can't comprehend the infinite, does it make any uh, either of these two indisputable truths l- less the reality? I mean, they are what the scriptures claim to be truth. Divine, sovereign election, human responsibility to believe. So the question I think that should be asked as we move forward is what exactly is the responsibility then uh, or, what is required of people when it comes to the doctrine of salvation? We've spent a couple of weeks looking at divine sovereign election. Now we're to the other side of it, the human equation, if you will. And, and many answers have been given to this kind of question you know, what do people need to do? And the answers usually are well, you've got to do good works, or uh, you've got to keep the commandments, or you've got to live out the golden rule, or you've got to be sincere. You've got to sincerely believe other things like that. But God makes it very clear that when it comes to the issue of being right with Him, there's one thing, and only one thing, that people must do to be right with God. They must believe in Jesus. They must believe in Jesus. Which, by the way, Jesus Himself said. Listen to what He said in John 6, 27-29. There it is. Thank you, Brad, for putting that up. Do, do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. For on him the, God the Father has set his seal. So he has fed the multitude with the, the loaves, and they want more. And he's like, don't work for the food that's going to perish. Go away. Natural bread. I've got food for you that's eternal, Right? And, and so they say, what must we do to be doing the works of God? And Jesus answered them, this is the work of God. That you believe in him who he has sent. Now notice, they thought in terms of works, plural. What must we do to be doing the works, plural, of God? And Jesus put it in the singular. This is the work of God. That you believe in him who he has sent. You believe in me. That's the one work. Now that's not a human work. And especially now that we've gone through divine sovereign election. We understand that even us believing in him is an act of God's grace to us. He causes us, draws us to repentance and gives us a gift of faith. But the point is, it's the work of God really. It's not the work of people, right? But what must we do? We must believe. We must believe in Jesus. And so Paul further explains this truth in this section that we are now entering in his letter to the Romans. This argument vindicating God's dealings with the Jews and the Gentiles. And in this section, what he does is he discusses the human volition, the human choice, the human act of believing, showing that there are, in essence, two paths, Of righteousness, or two different perspectives on how people can be right with God. Now, only one perspective or path is correct, and it leads to a right relationship with God. The other way was the path that the majority of the Jews, but many people today as well, take, which is is seeking to attain the righteousness of God through law keeping, through being good, through doing certain things, which only leads to rejection by God because in essence you are rejecting God on that path. So that's where we're headed. And he begins with kind of a comparison or a contrast between faith or law righteousness in those first verses nine, thirty through thirty-three. And in these verses, Paul explains the two paths, or the two different perspectives on how to be right with God. And he he refers to some Gentiles, doesn't he, who, who attained a right relationship with God by faith, or through faith, and how the majority of the Jews did not attain a right relationship because they were pursuing it in the wrong way, in the wrong way. So the Gentiles had what you could call faith righteousness, And the majority of the Jews had what you could refer to as law righteousness or self-righteousness. You know, as I was going through this, I was thinking, man, haven't we already covered this? Yeah, we certainly have. From Romans 1 all the way up to where we're at, he's been saying this over and over and over again. Why is that? It's because people are so bent towards believing in law righteousness... They need to be told over and over and over again that a right standing with God comes through by grace, through faith, and yes, by God's sovereign choice and demonstration of mercy towards us. But let's read those verses again. What shall we say then? The Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained it. That is, what did they attain? A righteousness that is by faith. So a right relationship with God as by faith. But that Israel who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness did not succeed in reaching that law. In other words, they didn't succeed in having a right relationship with God. Why? Because they didn't pursue it by faith, but as if it were based on works. They stumbled over the stumbling stone as, as it is written. Behold, I'm laying in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame, will not be put to shame. So the language that Paul uses here is, I think, it's very descriptive. It's picturesque. He pictures some Gentiles who are unconcerned, unconcerned about having the right relationship with God, not pursuing it in any way, how they could, you know, come to the righteousness of God. And yet, that is exactly what they did attain. That is what they did get and the reason they attained it was because when confronted with their sin and the need of the Savior through the preaching of the gospel, they put their faith in Jesus. That's what he's describing there. On the other hand is the book of the Jewish nation, which he, you know, he pictures the Jews who were doing everything they possibly could in their own power to establish or maintain a right relationship with God. They were in hot pursuit, trying to attain righteousness before holy God. So in these verses, in those verses that we just read again, and in verse 2 of chapter 10, we get a sense of just how much effort the Jews put into it. In these verses, it is said that they pursued it, twice. They pursued it, but... Dioko is a Greek word. It's like, be on the run. Put all the energy. Go for it, baby. Go for it. That's what they were doing. They were pursuing with everything they had. And in 10.2, it said that they had great zeal for God. Right? Energy, thrust. I mean, life. just like, yeah, it's all about God. Nothing but God. As I was thinking through, through that, It made me think of the Gospels. And if you've read the Gospels, you understand what Paul is saying here about the Jews and their pursuit of righteousness and their zeal for God. And perhaps one of the most noteworthy differences between the Gentiles in that day and the Jews, or we could say the unbelievers of today and the religious people of today. I mean, it kind of fits the same picture. The difference was that the Jews the really religious people, they took God seriously. I mean seriously. So it made me think of the play or the movie or the book, I suppose, Fiddler on the Roof. Maybe you've seen it. That old musical written by Chaim Potok. And in a comical way, Potok presents that all of Jewish life was wrapped up in Tradition, tradition, the papa, the mama. Or, you know, as you go on through that musical, the repeated phrases in the good book, it says. Of course, they're, you know, not usually right in what they think the good book says, but it's a comical parody, really, of Jewish life. But what it does present is that. All of Jewish life was wrapped up in in and around, keeping the law to be right with God. To be right with God. This was in stark contrast with the Gentiles. I mean, for the most part, Gentiles in Paul's day, and many people today, but in Paul's day in particular, having a lot of deities that they sought to honor, they had temples all over the place, they didn't show the same concern that the Jews did, about being right with God, or their gods. And the, the gods were only a small part of their lives. It might be a financial part of their life, like in Ephesus, where the, the, Paul's preaching in the gospel began to impact the economy about the statues that were being sold, you know, honoring Artemis or Diana. Yet what amazes Paul is that even though, you know, that was only a small part of their life, it is the casual Gentile who is not pursuing a right relationship with God who is the one who attained it, he says. They attained it. They received it. They took hold of it. And so, what happened? God suddenly intruded and intervened in his or their lives by way of the gospel message. You're a sinner. You need a Savior. You're condemned, but you can be delivered from it. And it is Jesus who can do that. And so this Gentile found peace and joy that comes from being in a right relationship with God through repentance and faith. Not repentance and good works. Repentance and faith. But the Jews, with all their zeal in pursuing righteousness, didn't attain it, he says. They did not succeed in reaching the law. They did not succeed in reaching that law, the law that would tell them that they were right, that they were righteous. They failed to find the forgiveness and peace with God, which the gospel promised. In fact, they only ended up feeling guilty, which everyone who is a law keeper to be right with God will experience. We saw that in Romans 7, right? I can't do it. I should. I know I should, but I can't. Uh, Who will deliver me from this misery? Paul explains that the reason for the difference was that the Gentiles attained a righteousness, that is, by faith. Right? Did you get that? They attained it through a righteousness, that is, by faith. They had what could rightly be called faith righteousness. But the Jews, because they did not pursue it by faith, but as though it could be attained, as he writes, based on works. Based on works. They ended up with self-righteousness, which is equivalent to law righteousness. So as Paul makes it clear, it's not the pursuit, really. It's not the pursuit of righteousness that is wrong. It's the way that the Jews were pursuing a right relationship with God that was wrong. Having zeal is not bad having misdirected zeal is bad. And so Paul consistently presented the the law as that which was intended to lead people to Christ. Right? We saw that in Romans 7 as well. Is the law bad? No, it's good. Because it points out people are sinners. They need a savior. So he consistently presented that. He he, he, he uh, made it clear the law would not give one a right standing with God. It it, it showed how sinful people are, not how righteous they are. Which is the opposite of the way that law-righteous thinkers think. Like, well, if I just keep the law, I'll be right with God, right? And the law was never intended to do that. So Paul concludes his thought in these first verses... By showing that the Jews sought the right goal in the wrong way. And thus they stumbled. They stumbled over the stumbling stone. And he quotes from the Old Testament. How ironic it is that Christ, who was intended to be the very precious cornerstone. Cornerstone. We're singing it, right? He was intended to be the very precious cornerstone. He became a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense to the Jewish people who were rejecting the gospel. But for the Gentiles who had heard the gospel and had faith righteousness, he says, they would not be put to shame. They would not be disappointed. Amen. So what is the point of that? The point is to say, uh, you must believe. This is human responsibility. It's faith. It's faith. It's believing. Believing in Jesus. Yes, divine sovereign election is there. It's one side of the equation. The other side of the equation, you must believe. And if you refuse to believe, the wrath of God will be poured out on you. It's coming. It's already here, but it's coming in its fullness in a coming day. There be no blood on your lentil, on your doorposts, and death will come. Eternal death. From that, Paul moves in 101 in through4 to a denunciation of law righteousness. So if you're filling in your insert, that, that is what you want to put in there. a denunciation of law righteousness in these verses. So that's what we see: a denunciation of self or law righteousness. But as is characteristic of Paul this is beautiful, uh, he does so with genuine compassion and love for his Jewish kin's kinsmen. I think we need to keep that in mind because last week it almost seemed a little harsh. Who do you think you are, oh man? Right? But listen to his heart for that person who is objecting to what he is preaching. And so the next line on your insert you want to fill in is praying for lost sinners. Praying for lost sinners. That's what we see Paul do. And I think it's one of the most outstanding things about this paragraph is that Despite Paul's profound conviction that God saves whomever He wills by His own choice, He shows mercy to whom He shows mercy, and He hardens whom He hardens. Nevertheless, he does not, it doesn't keep him from praying for his kinsmen according to the flesh. Did you get that? He was, he was the one who's teaching. God is sovereign. He chooses who he chooses, and not, not every Jew is going to be chosen. So you, you know, Jewish person, listen to me. I'm still praying for you. I'm still praying for you. And and so we've already seen his great concern for them expressed in the beginning of chapter 9, where he said that he'd be willing to be separated from Christ for the sake of his brothers. If they would just believe. His heart was for them. He says, my heart's desire and prayer for them is for their salvation, right? For their salvation. So he takes it even a step further. He not only is concerned for them, he prays for them. Clearly. And I want us to understand this. Praying for the lost is not inconsistent with believing in divine, sovereign election. Praying for the lost having desire to see of people come to know Christ, is not inconsistent with believing in with your heart that God is sovereign and he chooses whom he chooses. And He lets others go to the ends that they choose, as we saw last week. So it is never correct to say things or think things like, well, if God is the one who chooses and calls, there's nothing for us to do. I mean, I don't get it. If it doesn't it doesn't matter if we share the gospel, if God's gonna save him, he's gonna save. You know, why would that even matter? Whoever's gonna be saved will be saved, right? I mean that's it. Why is that a wrong way to think? Well, the reason it's a wrong way to think is because the way God calls people. Not the way he chooses them, but the way that he calls them to repentance and faith is through the sharing of the gospel and the praying of Christians for the people who need to hear the gospel. And I don't know about you, but I'm pretty certain this is another indisputable truth. God has not revealed to anyone, everyone who is called, everyone who is chosen. He doesn't reveal that. We don't know that information. So what must we do? We must share the gospel with all so that God will draw to repentance and faith those that he has chosen. He wants to use us into doing that. That will become even more clear as we move on uh, later in chapter 10. So, I think we could put it this way. We should pray and share the gospel with the lost, as though everything depends on us. While at the same time, we under- completely understand that everything depends on God. Right? We-, we should share the gospel like it depends on us. Because if they don't hear from us, maybe they won't hear. But at the same time, we know that if we refuse to do what God wants us to do regarding this, he'll get someone else to share the gospel with those of these chosen. He will draw them. Yes, it is true all that he has chosen will be saved but he wants to use us to get them that message so next from praying for them paul gets a little hard-nosed again and he says that law of righteousness is denounced this is a denunciation in these verses 1 through 4 it is denounced because zeal is not enough zeal is not enough so after pronouncing his desire and prayer for Israel's salvation he goes on to denounce them for their pursuit of righteousness with God through law through keeping the law again look at these verses for I bear them witness that they have zeal for God but not according to knowledge for being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. He's denouncing them, right? So a point that Paul is making that must be understood is that while zeal for God is never a bad thing, it is never equated with salvation. Zeal is not equated with being saved. The issue is not trying, but trusting. It's not trying, but but trusting. Sincerity of belief and zeal, and that's never the measure that determines whether a person has a right relationship with God. People can be very sincere in their religious beliefs, but they can be sincerely wrong. Right? Sincerely wrong. Eh, take for example. There are so many examples I could give. There are people every year in Alaska that, that want to go out and ice skate. And they're and the weather gets cold, the lakes begin to freeze up, and they think, ah, it's thick enough. I can get out on the ice and skate, or run a snow machine across the lake. Every year, someone goes through the ice, or a snow machine goes through the ice, and, and sometimes lives are lost because they were sincerely wrong. The lake couldn't hold them because the ice wasn't thick enough. Or you can take an example of every year, there are people who are killed by being shot with the pistol. Sometimes it's intended violence. But other times there's someone, you know, two people are together and someone pulls out a pistol and or a, a child picks up a pistol and they sincerely believe that the pistol is unloaded. No bullets in it. And they're, they're just kind of jokingly playing around and they point the pistol at someone and pull the trigger and the bullet goes out the end of the barrel enters the person, and they're either severely harmed or they're killed. All the while, the person who pulled the trigger is saying, I didn't know that the gun was loaded. Honestly, I didn't know that it was loaded. And that person, no doubt, was sincere in their belief that the gun wasn't loaded and certainly didn't intend on harming or killing someone as a result, but their sincerity was based on something that was not true. Right? I can think of a family that I've known for many years that lost a son that way. An older son. Two two guys that worked together at the fire department. Messing around with the pistol and it went off. Took his life. Took the son's life of of our, of our friend. So, there are many people in the world who, like the Jews, sincerely believe that being zealous in religious practices will gain them a right standing with God. Whatever God they believe in, right? Whether it's the God of the Bible or some other God. They believe, you know, if they're just zealous and sincere, they'll be okay. But their sincerity is not uh, able to make them right with God because their sincerity or their zeal is not based or founded in truth. And that's the next thing that Paul denounces about law righteousness, is the law of righteousness is not in accordance with the truth. The truth. He says knowledge, but what he's talking about is the truth. So Paul reveals that while the Jews had zeal, their zeal was not according to knowledge. They, they didn't know. But they should have known. Get that. They didn't know, he says. They were ignorant, but they should have known. They were ignorant of the righteousness of God, but their ignorance was induced by their seeking to establish their own righteousness. Isn't that what he says? They were ignorant of God's righteousness. They were seeking to establish their own righteousness, which resulted in the fact that they did not submit to God's righteousness. Well, that's like a whole lot of righteousness going on in that little phrase, isn't there? And this is somewhat, and I a, 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 I think a confusing verse to some as they read it. What in the world is he talking about here? But and and certainly Paul's objectors would not have agreed that the Jews didn't understand or know God's righteousness. But Paul's essentially saying that people who believe that a right relationship with God is established by law-keeping or doing good or being better than others refuse to believe that God what God clearly revealed in the Word, in the Old Testament as well as the New. What is that? (laughs) That one cannot be saved by keeping the law because no one is able to keep it. Did you get that? No one is able to be saved by keeping the law because no one, absolutely zero people other than Jesus, is able to keep it. What the Jews were ignorant of, then, is of greatest importance, And that is that the righteousness of God is freely given, never earned. The right the right stand with God is freely given by God's mercy. Right? We saw that last week. By His mercy, it's never earned. So Paul's saying that there were many Jews who were believing what was not in accordance with the truth that they claimed to believe in. And as long as people believe that they'll be right with God, through zealous obedience to the law, by living a good life, by keeping certain religious rituals, they remain in their lost estate condition because they refuse to submit to the revelation of righteousness revealed or fulfilled in Christ. And that's where he ends this little paragraph, verse 4. The Jews had rejected Jesus as God's Messiah, right? They rejected him. And consequently, they failed to understand something. That Christ is the end or the termination of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. Now, read that again. Christ is the end of the law for righteousness. What's he mean? The end of the law for righteousness. He means Christ is the end or the termination of the false belief that you can receive a right standing with God by keeping the law. So, I read this now, and I think, oh, oh, what a beautiful and marvelous statement this is for all of those who have turned from the lie of law righteousness to the truth of faith righteousness. Christ is the end of the law. For all those who have believed. They've come to realize. They've come to realize that Christ terminated. Or brought to an end that false belief. That a right relationship could be earned by being good. What a gloriously freeing truth. For all those who have believed the gospel. And maybe every one of us. Or at least certainly most of us here today. Isn't that freeing? You should think of it as freeing because... I no longer. I don't have to fight for it. I don't have to do it. I don't have to keep it. I, and then knowing that you can't anyway, it's free. It's like he did it for me. So, from a denunciation of law righteousness, Paul moves to a description of faith righteousness in verses five through eleven. He begins by. Uh, he, he begins by in, in, insisting that his teaching on justification by faith is in agreement. Listen to this. It's in agreement with the Old Testament. What he says about being right with God through faith is in agreement with the Old Testament. It's important for him to, you know, that, that his readers understand this, including his objectors. The guy that's constantly raising all these questions the straw man, if you will, that is doing that. He wants them to know that his teaching on this is not some novel or newfangled idea, but the justification by faith was always the basis of God's acceptance of sinners. Remember chapter 4? Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. As to the ungodly who believe that God justifies that that's what it says throughout this letter and he's repeating it here and so what Paul does in the, in these verses he puts together a group of passages from the Old Testament scriptures <laughs> I love this he wants to emphasize it grace is freely given that's God's part all is required on the part of sinners is to believe to believe faith righteousness. So the first line that you want to fill in there is Moses writes about faith righteousness. Well, he writes about law righteousness, but it point out faith righteousness. Notice also, look at this verse. It's a quote from Leviticus 18 and verse 5, in case you didn't know it, if you didn't look at a reference or whatever. For Moses writes about the righteousness that is based on the law, that the person who does the commandments shall live by them. Now, You might be thinking, what? How does that prove that faith righteousness is the right perspective? How does, that, how does that work? Notice that Moses writes. Isn't that interesting? It's a present active verb. It's like, because his writing is still true today. He wrote it long ago, about 1400 B.C. But what he wrote is still written. It stands written. And what is that? That the person who does the commandments shall live by them. So what is Paul's point? It is to demonstrate that law righteousness cannot save a person. That's his point. Paul wants everyone to understand that whoever would rely on their obedience to the law will be held accountable for their failure to fulfill it, to keep it. And no one keeps it perfectly, right? No one. Moses would also write, in Deuteronomy twenty-seven, twenty-six: 26 curse be anyone who does not confirm the words of this law by doing them. You say, I believe the law, but you don't do them, curse be you. You're cursed, by God, because you say you believe it, but you don't do it. So, if you're going to say you believe it, you've got to do it. And then, Jump to the New Testament, I think of James, the Lord's brother who wrote his epistle. He completes the thought, well, he says, For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has been become guilty of it all, right? James chapter 2 and verse 10. So you can, get this, you give me 99.9% obedient to the law and point, would that be point one? Not obedient? You're guilty of the whole thing. Or you could be ninety nine point nine disobedient and one percent obedient, you're still so guilty of the whole thing. You're just guilty because you don't keep it. You believe in law, righteousness, he's saying if you're gonna go that route, then you've got to keep it perfectly. So anyone who is not completely blind and self-deceived knows the impossibility of never disobeying God's law. That's the whole point of the way of the master, isn't it? Is to point out you break God's law. Everyone is a lawbreaker. Have you lied? Have you stolen? Have you cheated? Have you blasphemed the name of the Lord? Have you, you know, not kept the Sabbath? etc., etc., etc.? And then all the other laws beside those ten. <laughs> We're all lawbreakers. So you say you've got to keep the law to be right with God you better keep it perfectly to be right with God. Otherwise, you're out. You're judged. You're condemned. You're guilty. So, Paul's emphasizing, I think, three truths here. First, the person who pursues the right standing with God by trying to keep the law will be judged by the fact that they don't keep it. Right? That's what he's pointing out by quoting Moses. Uh, that the person who does the commandments shall live by them, and if you don't, you're going to be judged by them, right? The second thing is, it's impossible to keep the whole law. You say, do you think the Jews understood that? Absolutely, they should have understood that. That's why God gave them all the sacrifices, like the sin sacrifice, and the sacrifice of atonement, and the Passover lamb and all of those sacrifices it says, I fail so often. Here's a way to be atoned for your sin. Right? So built right within the law was an understanding. I don't keep the law. I can't keep the law. I need to be forgiven. I need my sins atoned for. They've kind of overlooking that. The third thing that he's saying here is that law of righteousness will ultimately condemn the person for their failure. It's just that certain. So he moves from that to faith righteousness, and I've already used this phrase, but here it is: is trusting, not trying. So he stated what it isn't. Right? It isn't law keeping. It isn't obedience or zeal. No what it is, is trusting God. Not trying to do your best. Trusting. Not trying. That's what he uh, is saying in these two, next two verses, 6 through 8. But the righteousness based on faith says, do not say in your heart who will ascend into heaven, that is to bring Christ down. Or who will descend into the abyss, that is to bring Christ up from the dead. Now that's a loose quote. The part about Christ and heaven and ascend, descending. That's not part of the, the Old Testament quote. Paul's putting that in parentheses. That's why it's in parentheses in your Bibles. It's just he's making a statement about it. But the, here's the quote. Here's Deuteronomy 30, verses 11 through 13. To know that we're talking about the commandments, the law. So, for this commandment that I command you today is not too hard for you. Neither is it far off. It is not in heaven that you should say, Who will ascend to heaven for us and bring it to us, that we may hear it and do it? Neither is it beyond the sea, that's the idea of the abyss, that you should say, Who will go over the sea for us and bring it to us, that we may hear it and do it? Now, these verses kind of get jumbled in people's things. Like, what in the world is he talking about? Well, let me put it in these terms. Uh, first of all, what the language that Paul is using here is uh, expressions that really became proverbial for that which is impossible. (laughs) No one's ascending up into heaven and getting a law and bringing it back down. No one's descending into the abyss of the sea and bringing up a law from there either. I mean, no. You're not doing that. It's impossible to do that. So, the basic meaning is that righteousness that is based on faith isn't such that, uh, isn't such that it requires superhuman effort to accomplish. Which, by the way, would be true of law-keeping. Right? We can't keep it. It requires superhuman you know, effort to do it, and we're not super superhuman. We're fallen humans. Right? And, and so... What he's saying is that the righteousness of faith, based on faith, doesn't set some impossible task before us. Like, as Paul put it, like bringing the Messiah down from heaven, or bringing him up from the dead, or by keeping the law perfectly. It doesn't require that. God has done all that is required. God has done what is necessary, and we received his gift of righteousness by faith. By faith. So there's nothing left for people to do. Well, except for to believe. Right? They must believe. So don't ever believe, just as an encouragement, don't ever believe that you have to do something to be saved or maintain a relationship with God because God's already done all that was necessary for you to have a right relationship with Him forever. Forever. So what is faith righteousness what Paul is saying it is, is he, he kind of describes it in, in the next quote. It's from Deuteronomy 30 and verse 14. Why do you think he's quoting from these Old Testament passages? For the Jewish hearers, for the Jewish readers, for the objector, for the really religious person? So he quotes from Deuteronomy 30, 30 verse 14, the next verse in, in that passage that I was reading. The word is near you, in your mouth, and in your heart. And then he puts it in brackets. That is the word of faith we proclaim. So the point is clear. Faith, righteousness is right there to receive from God. It's right there. It doesn't take trying, only trusting. That's the message of the gospel, which Paul faithfully proclaimed. Now, the content of faith righteousness. That's verses 9 through 11. Hang with me for about five minutes. It's not going to take me long to get through this at all. I know, you're just, you're, you're, you're there. That's good. So, this is the content that he explains in verses 9 through 11. So, you have to have faith in something, right? <laughs> you can have zeal and sincerity, but it can be the wrong thing. He says, here's the right thing. Here's the right thing to believe. And that's what he's saying. is This is what must be trusted to be saved, to be justified before God. And he's giving the content of truth that must be in us, part of us, for us to be declared righteous before God. And he says the same thing twice in verses 9 and 10. He repeats it. But he does it in a one-two-two-one two, two, one order, or A-B-B-A B, B, a, order. So, let's read those verses. If you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, that's A and B, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes, and is justified, B, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved, A. You notice it's saying the same thing twice. And it's not the order that is important what is said and is critical is what we must believe and what will come out of our mouth. Paul identifies two things that must be done in these verses. It's pretty simple. Confession with the mouth that Jesus is Lord and belief in the heart that God has raised him from the dead. Confession with the mouth that Jesus is Lord and belief that God raised him from the dead. These are the saving facts. This is the saving knowledge from the human perspective, the human volition side. The act of confession with the mouth, what does that reveal? Well, it reveals an outward action that is an intellectual expression, really, of what is believed in the heart, right? What comes out of the mouth reveals what's in the heart. That's the same thing Jesus said. That's okay. Okay. <laughs> my watch goes off on me. Seriously? <laughs> so a person must believe and confess that Jesus is Lord. What does that mean? A lot of people think that means that he's master. You know, that he's the one that should be directing your life. And he is. He is master. He is our teacher. He is our director. But that's not what Paul means here. What Paul means here is, You must believe that Jesus is God. Confess with them that Jesus is Lord, that he is God. They must understand that the only reason the death of Jesus has such great and saving value is because he is God, and not just a man. He is the God-man who died in the place of sinners, who bore the wrath of their sin. So believing in the resurrection is faith in the ultimate proof. Of Jesus' de- deity. I mean, the, the resurrection was the seal of approval by God the Father. That the work of the Son of God was sufficient and complete. It, it brought everything to completion. An end. An end of law of righteousness. So to believe these facts, he says, results in being saved. Or being justified before God. Being declared righteous by God. So... Let me, let me just give you a biblical example of this very thing. Confess with the mouth, Jesus is Lord, believe in the heart, that God raised him from the dead, and you'll be saved. You know this story if you've read the Gospels. It talks about the crucifixion of Christ, right? His death on the cross. There were two other men hung with Christ on the cross, one on his left and one on his right. And we're told in in one of the Gospels that early on, when they were crucified there, uh, that both of them were reviling him. A short time later, it says that one of the thieves, in a sense, came to his senses and he spoke to Jesus. And this is what he said to Jesus Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Think about that. What was he expressing? His belief that Jesus was God. Lord, he didn't mean teacher. He didn't mean my master. He meant Lord, God. Remember me when you come into your kingdom. So he believed that Jesus was Lord. He confessed it with his mouth. And he believed in his heart that Jesus would be risen from the dead. How do I know that? Because he says, remember me when you come into your kingdom. He was going to die. Jesus was going to die. He knew that. But he knew that Jesus would rise from the dead and establish his kingdom on this earth. Lord, Lord God, remember me when you come into your... Belief in the heart, confession with the mouth, they're both there. I mean, he did that. The dying thief had the faith to believe that the one being crucified next to him was the Lord himself. And that he would rise from the dead and he would reign over his kingdom. And and the dying thief, you know, he's there hanging on the cross, right? He would have no opportunity to do any works of righteousness, to keep the law. There was not, no time to even talk about obeying the law. Doing good works? Improving his character? Come on, that's not happening. He's dying. All he could do was move his lips those cracked and swollen lips from being parched no doubt and barely being able to speak the words no doubt but he confesses with his mouth what he believed in his heart that Jesus was Lord and that he would rise from the dead and that he would be forgiven if Jesus so allowed it because he recognized him for who he was and consequently it says I would say he was saved was justified. He was justified. And we know this. We do know this because of what Jesus said to him. You remember what he said? Today, truly, today you will be with me in paradise. The abode of God, right? Wow. I tell you, I guarantee you that man was not disappointed. He was not put to shame. Just as Paul says in verse 11, our last verse, for the scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. So think about Paul has presented there are two basic paths people take in pursuing a right relationship with God. But, but faith righteousness is the only path that will save a person from their sin. It's never gained by trying to be good or by earning it. By our good outweighing our bad, or us being better than other people, being gooder than the badder? You know, the good, bad, and the ugly thing, you know, I know. Nor is it based on how sincerely we believe something that may not be true, or by how zealous we could be about our religious beliefs, and practices. I mean, the path of salvation is the way of faith righteousness, not law righteousness. So the great divide in humanity is between those who believe in their heart, and God raised Jesus from the dead and confess with the mouth that Jesus is Lord, and that that is sufficient to secure salvation. And the other half is those who don't believe human responsibility. It is the responsibility of a person to believe these saving facts. And and those who don't will face God's ultimate judgment. Not because they simply were not chosen. But because they refused to believe that God's righteousness can only come to us through faith in Jesus Christ. So, believe. (laughs) and you will not be disappointed. Don't believe and your disappointment lasts for eternity. Have you believed? Have you? Well then rejoice in that if you have and pray for those who haven't. Lord we are thankful for your word. Thank you for the clarity of it. And while we're in a difficult passage, as we've noted uh, already in last week, the week before, and this week, it's difficult words to understand at times, but we trust that you, Holy Spirit, have made it clear to us today. And it will just go deep down within our soul and into our heart, into the core of our being, so that we'll be people who are so very thankful for the gift of salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. And there will be people who care for those people who are not saved that maybe are chosen, that we would have the privilege and joy of sharing the gospel with them. And, and Lord, also, just thank you for the reminder through this kind of passage that we don't know who you have chosen, who you will call You've given us this responsibility to share the gospel with others and sometimes we end up feeling guilty like we didn't do our job if someone doesn't believe. But it's not our job to cause them to believe. We can't persuade them. Only you can do that. And so thank you that that removes guilt from us and it causes us to have absolute certainty that you can use us, you want to use us and that you will accomplish your good purpose in every every person's life. So many things to rejoice in. We are thankful. Thanks, too, for the food we're going to eat, fellowship we'll have around the food. In your great name we pray. Amen.